turn in your Bible to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. I'm going to read. Father, we come to you in Yeshua's name and ask for your blessing on this reading as we talk about a subject that isn't actually talked about too much in churches and congregations much anymore, and that's end times and apocalyptic literature. So we ask for your blessing and your understanding. We ask for your Ruach HaKodesh to give us understanding in Yeshua's name. Amen. I'm going to be reading from the Complete Jewish Bible, Dr. David Stern's translation. Um, not just because this is a Messianic congregation, but because, as I'll explain later, uh, part of what happened with Daniel and his friends was a, a re-educational process, and so I want to emphasize that they were Jewish and read their names in Hebrew, which even in English translations isn't really done. It's sort of anglicized. So it's Daniel chapter 1. I'll read chapter 1, and then I'll go into my sermon. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Yehuda, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, Babylon, came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Adonai handed Jehoiakim, king of Yehuda, over to him, along with some of the articles from the house of God. He took them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the articles in the storehouse of God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, the eunuch, serving as his chief officer, to bring into the palace from the people of Israel some of royal or noble descent. They were to be boys without physical defect, handsome in appearance, versed in all kinds of wisdom, quick to learn, discerning and having the capacity to serve in the king's palace. And he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Chastim. The king assigned them a daily portion of his own food and the wine he drank, and they were to be cared for in this way for three years. At the end of this time, they were to become the king's attendants. Among these from the people of Yehuda were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's how you pronounce their name in Hebrew. The chief officer gave them other names to Daniel. He gave the name Belshazzar to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Mishach, and to Azariah, Avednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine he drank. So he asked the chief officer to be excused from defiling himself. God caused the chief officer to be kind and sympathetic toward Daniel. However, the chief officer said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king. After all, he has given you an allowance of food and drink. So if he were to see you boys looking worse than the others your age, you would be putting my own head in danger from the king. Then Daniel said to the guard whom the chief officer put in charge of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please try an experiment on your servants. For 10 days, 
have them give us only vegetables to eat and water to drink, then see how we look and compare us with how the boys who eat the king's food look and deal with their servants according to what you see. He agreed to do what they had asked and gave them a 10-day test. At the end of 10 days, they looked better and more robust than all the boys who were eating the king's food. So the guard took away their food and the wine they were supposed to drink and gave them vegetables. I want to interpose something to, to clear something up. Several trans uh, commentaries. When Daniel went to the king's officer, the king's eunuch, depends how you translate it, and he said, I'm afraid of the king, and then Daniel said what he said. Many commentators put that as the same person. That is not what the scripture says. The scripture says that he went to the king's eunuch officer, and he said, I'm afraid of my lord the king. In essence, the man said, no. So he went to, Daniel went to the guard, which was under the king's officer. So it's like he went one way and it didn't work, so he went the other way. So I wanted to clear that up, that the king's eunuch, the king's officer said no initially, but Daniel wouldn't take no for an answer. A lot of commentators get that wrong. I was amazed. I looked at several of them. Verse 17. To these four boys, God had given knowledge and skill in every aspect of learning and wisdom. Moreover, Daniel could understand all kinds of visions and dreams. When the time the king had set for them to be presented came, the chief officer presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, and when the king spoke with them, none was found among all of them to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service and in all matters requiring wisdom and understanding, whenever the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the musicians and exorcists in his entire kingdom. So Daniel remained there until the first year of King Koresh, Cyrus, which pretty much puts it at Daniel was in office for the majority of his time. Some people say that maybe he stepped down, but the Bible says he didn't. He was in office for a long time. Now, I'm going to talk about Daniel, the book of Daniel a little bit. Daniel is, because I want to set the record straight, this will be like a sporadic teaching over the year 2020, but I want to set the record straight because there's a lot of people and a lot of debate. Daniel is mostly apocalyptic literature, but also biographical and historical. So apocalyptical literature reveals mysteries from heaven and earth, the world to come. So it's from God's point of view, and we have to remember that. The vision that Daniel received was a vision from God. One commentator called it like Daniel is like a picture book. And we know what a picture book is, for, typically for kids. It's very basic, doesn't reveal a lot, but it helps for us to visualize what's going on. So in essence, what Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar saw was not a lot of history. They saw broad overviews. It's a snapshot. In apocalyptic literature, it can be difficult to distinguish the symbolic from historical. 
In Dan Daniel, the book of Daniel focuses on the sovereignty of God as Rabbi Frank talked about um, in um, the book of uh, Exodus, uh, in the Torah reading, that um, Exod in book of Exodus, that God hardened the Pharaoh's heart. So there's a kind of symbiosis. Pharaoh's heart was hard to begin with, and so for God to gain his glory, he hardened it further still. So we have to remember the sovereignty of God, that God is capable of hardening and not hardening persons' hearts. And it's kind of scary when we go down that path. The book of Daniel shows the sovereignty of God that the Lord and when the Lord knows what is to happen in the future. That was something that the children of Israel didn't know when they went into exile. And so Daniel's vision shows a broad overview of history for the next uh, thousand years, two thousand years. And it also shows that God has set limits on history as to how far it goes. And an example of that as far as the sovereignty of God would be in Mark 13, verse 20, where it says, where Yeshua says about the end times, that if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So that's a testimony to the fact that God only knows history. He sets limits to it. So man does what man thinks he does, but it's God that is in charge. And a lot of the themes of apocalyptic literature, Daniel 1 shows that the Lord allowed Judah to be exiled, which I'll talk about in a minute as to why. Man's history is, in fact, God's history. One commentator says that a spiritual conflict lies at the heart of every event, however great, however mundane. Our own contribution of history depends on our answer to this question, and it's a question that Daniel had to ask himself, I'm sure. Am I living for the city of God and according to its code of contact, conduct, or am I living according to the bylaws of the city of destruction? And so we need to remember that in apocalyptic literature, it, Daniel's vision shows that wicked powers will grow in strength. And for Nebuchadnezzar, it showed that his kingdom isn't going to last forever, but we'll talk about that in, in the future. And that it's a vision from a heavenly perspective that shows us that we need to endure and persevere under trial. And at the end of time, the sovereign God will intervene, overcome, destroy evil, and in the final analysis, he will dwell with his people. So I just want to repeat that, uh, that prophecy is the interpretation of history from the standpoint of God's covenant word and promise. Now, it, it says in the beginning of Daniel 1 that Israel was sent into Exodus, and that was in fulfillment um, of Deuteronomy 31 and many other spots where it says um, verses 15 through 18 it says and the Lord appeared at the tent in a pillar of cloud and the cloud stood over the entrance to the tent and the Lord said to Moses you are going to rest with your ancestors and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering they will forsake me 
and break the covenant I made with them. And in that day, I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and calamities will come upon them. And in that day, they will ask, have not these disasters come upon us because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face in that day because of all their wickedness and turning to other gods. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, it says, See, I set before you life and death, life and prosperity, death and destruction. It's Deuteronomy 13, verses 15 through 18. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, decrees, laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. Now, I wanna, when I was thinking about this, at first I thought, at first, I, it comes from reading history that what happened to Israel maybe happens differently to New Covenant believers but then after I thought about it, what I've read, I realize in many respects, believers, if they forsake the Lord, are sent into exile. Because it says in, um, in uh, Romans one twenty five, it says that, and we see this in the end times, that Paul said that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. So we actually see that in the body of Messiah in many parts, particularly in Western cult. Well, not just Western, it's also in second and third world countries, Africa, South America, where people are following strange doctrines, doctrines of demons. And so in Second Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, and it's an end times, particularly in tribulation, that therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So like the purpose of the exile for the Israelis was corrective, was to purify, train, and educate. And in New Covenant times, if we forsake God, God will in essence, say, well, you want to believe the lie, I'm just going to completely turn you over to that. And if you look in the book of Revelations, the Lord warned, particularly in Ephesus and others, that they needed to repent and change, and like with the Ephesians, that they needed to repent or he would take their lampstand. And if you look at a lot of uh, the congregations of the book of Revelation, chapter 2, was at what Rome was calling Asia, which now would be Turkey, and uh, a lot of them are gone. A lot of the mainline congregations that have gone progressive, quote-unquote, are dying or dead. And in Europe, they've been converted to other things. So there really is an exodus Congregations that abandon God die or they're turned over to their corruption and their bad doctrines. And I can see a time that if the body of Messiah in Western culture doesn't 
purify itself, I can see God lining a fence around them and saying, no more. You know, they're apostate. Don't come near them. I can see that happening. Um, that's as detailed as I want to get. But I think eventually God's going to, like, you know, turn up the heat. So let's talk about Babylon from an historical point of view. Babylon, this is not just for today, for the future. Nowadays, we think of Babylon, we think of the world system, but back then, Babylon was just one of many empires. It was an important commercial and trade center. It was filled with, filled with paganism. And what we don't realize is we need to remember that prior to the United States, to Western culture, there was no such thing as a separation of what's now called church and state. Religion, pagan or otherwise, Christian or otherwise, was fused with the government. When you talked to the king, it was as if you were talking to either God or God's representative. So you just didn't talk back. You didn't correct him. And we know now, and I'll talk about it in the future, that the Babylonian culture had a, and this is something I came across in secular history books, had a huge effect on all other societies that happened after them. And it's probably one of the reasons why God calls the believers to come out of Babylon. Because in essence, Babylon, Rome, all these pagan cultures have become integrated into society. A lot of what we believe, there's basis for some of that in Babylon. And so Daniel was one of, there were three waves of conquering by Babylon, and Daniel was in the first wave. The king was in the second, and the complete destruction of Israel was in the third wave. So and even in the, the judgment, there was mercy. He gave them time to repent, which they never did. And one of the reasons Babylon and other nations always exiled their people was generally when you take over a country, the people don't like it. And it's still true to this day. And so to prevent that in ancient times, the kings would deport the entire people and scatter them abroad so that it would eliminate all the problems. And then he, they would take, and Nebuchadnezzar did what it says in the book of Daniel, they would re-educate them. And so that's one of the reasons for the exile. And so Daniel was born into the tribe of Judah, into a royal tribe, possibly a royal family. And he may or may not have been a eunuch. See, the word in Hebrew for eunuch depends on, can also be an officer. And it depends on the context. The most scholars are, there's not a lot of evidence for that. So he could be a eunuch. There's likely he was, but not necessarily because he was part of a group of people being trained to serve around the king. He wasn't trying to 
he wasn't part of the harem, but on the other hand, men were made a eunuch because they didn't want, the king didn't want them to be distracted. So Daniel was taken captive at an age of 15 or 16, and he lived there till he was in his 85, possibly into his 90s. He was there his whole life. And if he was a eunuch, he probably knew he couldn't go back to Israel because he couldn't be part of the temple worship anymore. He would be excluded from it. And part of it, I think, is Daniel's chief characteristic was his uncompromising attitude and his willingness to be faithful, but is also doing it in a gracious manner. And so we see, as we read in chapter 1, that Daniel was asked to eat food in a certain way. And this is where we've got to think, particularly in light of the society we're in nowadays with all the pagan cultures and all the, some of the holidays are based on, you know, non-biblical things. Like at Halloween, it's amazing the number of people I come across that are believers that celebrate Halloween. I come across photos of that just constantly. It just blows me away. And um, so it's unlikely, like Joseph, that Daniel didn't just become faithful. Usually there's, as I read, there's a trajectory. People travel a path, and so when somebody apostatizes, as we saw a couple of them in the last couple years, last year, it didn't just happen overnight. There was a trajectory they had where they were continually moving away from God, and then they decided to make it visible for people to see. And I think it's the same way with Daniel. When Daniel stood up for what he believed, it didn't just come out of nowhere. It was a trajectory that he was on that he came out of a country, Israel, that was judged for being pagan into a society that was being super pagan. So he was in, among a society that was, for back, lack of a better term, super pagans. They were like pagan beyond belief. And so when Israel realized they were going into it, they realized, like Daniel, that if they didn't learn to stand they had to return to their culture or they would risk losing who they were as a nation. The exile of the nation of Israel forced the Jewish people to fight to maintain their identity. Otherwise, they would find themselves being absorbed into Babylon's society. That is one of the reasons many empires, including the Babylonians, exiled people to defuse the rebellions. And that's one of the things we need to realize as believers that if we don't return to our biblical identity, we're going to find ourselves absorbed into the culture. And we see that a lot in a lot of churches, congregations, synagogues, where they're almost no different than the society around them. And so then somebody says, well, what's the sense of me going to a congregation if I'm going to find the same thing inside the doors and I'm outside? There's like no difference. If Daniel had not meant to be faithful to God and his word in the beginning, it is unlikely that Daniel would have experienced his future decisions or been a shining example to others in the future. 
or worse yet, Daniel would have maybe experienced them, but he would have failed and forced others to fail as well. So in essence, what Daniel and his friends and other Jewish people that were brought into uh, Babylon to be part of the king's advisors was a multi-year training and learning how to be a pagan Babylonian style. In essence, they were being brainwashed. And this is something I was, you know, I thought it was harsh when I first saw it, but several commentators made the same comment. Daniel was being brainwashed. And how many of us can look at what we hear on the radio, uh, see on TV, the movies, this constant barrage of secular paganism, and it's like what Hitler used to say, if you repeat a lie often enough, it gets into your mind and it becomes part of you. And that's actually what happened during World War II is he would repeat the lie so much that even people who called themselves believers started believing the very thing. So Daniel received training to be a part of advancing the Babylonian kingdom. Though the goal was to affect and retrain Daniel and his friends, in fact, the opposite happened. Daniel and his friends ended up affecting Babylon, and that's because he was willing to stand on God's word. So their training was in architecture, and these things seem innocuous, but you got to remember, this is from a pagan point of view, and so their religious culture was fused in with their training, and so part of learning that culture was also worshiping their God. So he must have walked a really hard tightrope, and that's a, a question we have to ask ourselves a lot, is what we learn is how much you know, the questions we have to ask is, what's the purpose? And not that we shouldn't learn, but who gets the glory? And sometimes we, you know, so he had to learn architecture, astrology, astronomy, law, mathematics, learning Akkadian, a very difficult language to learn. And the educational process is or becomes a foreign for brainwashing or behavior and behavior modification. Daniel and his friends were brought into the palace to be educated and re-educated in the ways and thinking of Babylon, retrained into a new system. And maybe that is why the Lord warns us in the book of Revelations to come out of her. The king wanted to mitigate any future problems even inside the palace by completely brainwashing them. And do we realize, as I've said, that the system of the world the Babylonian system that's out there is a form of brainwashing if we're not careful. Do we know when we are trying to be retrained and re-educated? And so what happened to them, the ways they were brainwashed, is they were removed from their familiar environments. There's not a lot of, ref there's no references in the book of Daniel to him or his friends interacting with the culture around them. It may have happened hard to believe he didn't, but there's not a lot of reference to it. And they were removed from their other believers. They were removed from fellowship, removed probably from attending worship services, which is probably why Daniel had his own. They were removed from reading God's word or inhibited or prevented. Uh, it does happen. It happened um, after Alexander where... Um, 
King Antiochus Epiphanes made everything Jewish illegal, forced brainwashing. It's common for dictatorships and authoritarian systems to take children out of their environment so as to brainwash them, in essence, stealing their future. And that's why there's such a battle in the educational system right now, is because, in essence, the system which is not based on God or his word anymore, is trying to steal the future and why it's becoming increasingly more difficult to find godly leaders or godly leaders that are willing to stand up for truth anymore. And it also happens in cults where they say they are not your friends, I am. They don't love you like we do. What harm will it? And for all we know, Daniel, in taking his stand, had to face persecution from the other people that aren't mentioned. There were other Jewish leaders. Well, what harm will it do to eat Babylonian food? You know, what difference does it make? It's not going to hurt you. But one of the things I've learned, I just finished reading a, a book for the third time on the rise and fall of the Third Reich by William Shire, and they had a chance in the beginning to stop Hitler before any of this started. But because... That society, by that point, was so thoroughly secular. There wasn't anybody with enough biblical grounding to stand up to evil. So it became progressively harder to the point where actually a year or two, it would have been impossible to stop them short of all-out war. And so Daniel learned what we need to learn, that... He had to stand up fast and early, or it just becomes progressively harder to stand up to evil. And look how hard it is now to stand up to evil in our society. And during the re-education process, there is a tendency to get people to start them on the path of compromise. Small compromises lead to bigger compromises in the future, as well as a hardening of the heart towards God and the world. So what ends up happening is that as we start to compromise, our hearts become hardened because then our spirit, if we're believers, will start to convict us. And if we ignore it, then our hearts become hardened. It becomes progressively harder. And so we might make small choices like celebrating certain things during certain holidays which are completely pagan and secular but what ends up happening is your heart becomes hard and it becomes harder to actually respond to the moving of God's spirit so Daniel's choice to not participate in the foods and drinks of Babylon represents his unwillingness to go down that path if the the keeper the guard of Daniel and his friends would have refused Daniel instead of going along with him. Daniel never discusses what he would have done if he would refuse, but I find it hard to believe that Daniel would have, would have gone along with it. I think he would have probably refused, the speculation refused, and gone on a hunger strike and died. And... Um, but that was so he learned early to stand on God's words while he was in his a teenager. We'll never know. 
And another way of brainwashing was to change the name of Daniel and his friends as a way of reorienting his mind. In Hebrew, that their names were, God was part of his name, Daniel, Hananiah, etc. And so by changing their names to Babylonian, their names actually started reflecting the Babylonian false gods. And it's to their credit that even during their interaction with Nebuchadnezzar, they're still referred to as Daniel. Daniel is still referred to as Daniel sometimes. But it was interesting as Daniel's graciousness. They seemed to pick their battles. They didn't become hard-hearted and they didn't start riots. They just said, we're standing on God's word and if we die, we die. If we allow our mind to be changed, we start to live like what our minds tell us. That is why the system bombards us with stuff. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, 1 and 2 says that we are to, supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our, mi uh, renewing of our mind by the, the word of God and not by the society around us. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not, be con do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Why wouldn't Daniel and his friends not eat Bab uh, Babylonian foods? Well, one is the fear of God. He knew he had an answer to God one day. He just simply wasn't going to go down that way. Also, because the food would have been prepared by non-Israeli cooks, people that didn't understand or care about uh, kosher, biblical kosher laws, therefore the um, food was unclean. The food was likely, most of it, particularly the, it was dedicated to pagan deities. Although I, I don't know about vegetables, but certainly the meat would have been. Uh, it could have been a rejecting of a luxurious lifestyle, food, and materialism. He just simply didn't want to go become a Babylonian. So he just didn't want anything to do with the society he was around. And also, why he didn't drink Babylonian wine was because it was not diluted. Jewish wine was diluted with water. Straight wine, this really got me thinking, not that I want to go there, was considered strong drink, and it was a part of pagan worship. So he just didn't, so Daniel was like, I just don't want any part of this. And even though it seemed like, it would have seemed like minor to a lot of people to Daniel, he saw it as one step in a progression of compromises that would lead to his destruction. So he decided, like what James said in chapter 2, verse 17, he decided that faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. In Daniel 1, chapter 18, that the end of their training, It paid off. Daniel's taking a stand paid off because it said in verse 18, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and found none equal to Daniel, 
Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And you need to remember that because if you look at Daniel in context, if you read the whole book, you'll see that crop up again and again and again that the king Nebuchadnezzar found Daniel and his friends ten times better than the magicians because Daniel had God as the source of wisdom where they had pagan culture and lies and probably made up most of it. God blessed Daniel because of his obedience and for God's glory and as a witness to the pagan culture. And we talk about wisdom in the Hebrew. It's not just skills, experience, and efficiency, but wisdom in the Bible is a person who is knowledgeable and experienced in following God and godly living. So Daniel's special gifting from God was the ability to interpret dreams and visions. And he always gave God the glory, just like Joseph did. I was just reading that this morning, where both when Nebuchadnezzar was asking for the interpretation of his dream, like the Pharaoh, both Daniel and Joseph said to the, the king, the Pharaoh, to their face, it's not in me, it's God that gives him. So in essence, that's like he was taking a, both taking a huge risk, saying there's somebody bigger than you, and he's the source of all wisdom. So Daniel and his friends were better than the pagan men of wisdom because God was their source. Really, the whole thing was a contest between God and the, the true God and the false Babylonian gods who are no gods at all. And so we see, in essence, this is like an introduction. It's kind of a fast introduction. We see Daniel starting quickly that he had to take a stand and he was unwilling to compromise and he remained faithful. And it leads from there into chapter 2, which we'll probably get in in a few weeks, where Daniel was then because him and his friends were wiser than the pagans, that they were able to, that the king was able to give wisdom that the king would accept because he had a proven track record of being of integrity. Father, we come to you in Yeshua's name and thank you for this introduction, though it was a bit rushed. There was a lot to cover, but we wanted I wanted to set the pace that Daniel was a man of faithfulness, that he refused to stand, he refused to become part of the culture, that he stood up for your word in the midst of a completely degenerate society where the king was worshipped and his word was law and God, and he was still willing to take a stand. In Yeshua's name, amen.